Okay, next I'd like to invite uh, my sister Jasmine to come up and uh, give us our scripture reading this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall call sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Jasmine. Good morning, everyone. So these past couple weeks in our sermons, we've been talking about culture shock. And we've been looking at the way that Jesus calls his followers to live and contrasting that with the way the world calls us to live. And I don't know about you, this has been really hard for me. This has been really hard for anyone else. Like just seeing the ways that Jesus calls us to live and realizing how wildly different it is from the way that we naturally tend to live in life. Like today especially, we're looking at when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Like, I don't know if anyone has ever described me as meek, right? Like, this is just weird. And, you know, even getting up here to teach on this just feels weird. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you have to preach on things that you're not necessarily the strongest at. And I feel like the past several weeks have been that, but today especially is just one of those weeks where what Jesus has to say is so shocking. That's, that's the image we've been using as we've been looking at this series is culture shock. When you move from one country on earth where you've lived your entire life to another country, you just realize they do things differently here. And all the things you've taken for granted throughout your life of like, this is the way things are, this is the way things should be done, you all of a sudden realize that's not the only way to do things. And the whole way you've lived your life up to that moment gets thrown into question uh, because you realize there are different ways of doing things than you've ever known were possible. And we've been seeing that joining Jesus and lining ourselves up with him and becoming part of God's kingdom brings us into contact with a whole new way of living. Just like moving to a new country brings us into contact with a new way of living that the things we've assumed throughout our lives are just the way things are, the way things should be, actually aren't necessarily the way that things work in God's kingdom. And so we've been looking at what God says is the way to live if we want to be blessed, if we want to experience his blessing. And it's been eye-opening. Like the first couple of weeks in this series, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, who in our world says the poor in spirit are blessed? Nobody. 
But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then last week, he said, blessed are those who mourn. Again, nobody in our world wants to be the one who's always crying all the time. We want to get through our struggles with strength and look strong, move on till we can be happy again. But Jesus says, no, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then today, we have blessed are the meek. And we've seen the past couple of weeks, this word blessed, it actually means when Jesus says, blessed are these types of people, what he's saying is they are the types of people that you should envy. Like you should look at them and think, man, why can't I be more like them? I wish if, whatever it takes, I wish I could be like that type of person, like the poor in spirit, like those who mourn. How shocking is that? Jesus calls us to envy the spiritual beggars and to envy people who mourn. And I think maybe because of our culture that we live in, today's is even more shocking. It takes some of the most deeply held assumptions we have about how the world works and, and flips them directly on its head. Because today Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, one great way to, to meditate on and think about the Bible is if you take a verse and you just take out one word or you, you focus on one word and you ask, what does this word add to the meaning of this sentence? Or what would change if we took this word out? Or if we changed it to a different word, how would the meaning be different? And I know you've all just heard me quote this verse, but I want you to just look at this verse and think for a second. If I saw this and I didn't know what Jesus said, how would I fill in that blank? What word would I put right there? Blessed are the, for they shall inherit the earth. How many of you would have said the rich? I think that's what I would have said. Blessed are the rich, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the powerful, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, blessed are the famous, for they shall inherit the earth. That's, that's sort of our default expectation in our world, right? Like the world expects that the rich and successful and powerful and famous are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Like if you had to think of specific names of people who would be on the list of like, they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. What names come to mind? Let me give you some suggestions of who might come to mind. Jack Ma. Anyone think he might be on that list? Jeff Bezos. Bill Gates. Elon Musk, I mean, he probably traded most of his share in Earth for exclusive rights to the moon and Mars, but he would have been up there, right? Or maybe it's the powerful, like the Clintons and the Obamas, the Trumps, Duterte, right? Like we expect people with tons of money, people running huge companies, world leaders, they're the ones who are gonna inherit the Earth because they can control things here and now. They can influence things here and now. And we look at them and we think that's what true power looks like. The earth belongs to these people and people like them. But as we've seen the past couple of weeks, Jesus is taking our expectations. He's flipping them on their head. He's throwing us into the deep end of culture shock and showing the way we've always expected the world to work isn't the only way things can work. There's actually a better way to live. And we're gonna look at that today. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we'll look at a better way to live, a bigger inheritance, and learning to live meekly. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you tell us 
how you want us to live. Not just because that's the way that you say to do it and therefore we must do it, but because that's actually the way things work best. God, I confess that so often I look at your way of doing things and think that's ridiculous and crazy and don't do it. But God, I pray that you would give us all hearts today that hear what you have to say, that recognize that your way is the best and that long to live this way and, and that seek to truly live meekly and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first off, a better way to live. Like I said, the way Jesus calls us to live right here is shocking. He doesn't say, blessed is Bill Gates, for he shall inherit the earth. He says, blessed are the meek. Now, meek, not a super common word in our world today. Um, But when it does come up, I don't think most of us would think, oh, blessed, enviable, as the first descriptors that come to mind when we think about meek people we know. Maybe think about it this way. You're in the grocery store, and you're walking down the aisle at Fusion, and you hear your friends talking really loud from the next aisle over. You're like, oh, yeah, go say hi to my friends. But as you start walking over to go say hi to them, you realize they're talking about you, and they don't know you're there. So you're like, I'm just going to listen and hear what they have to say about me when I'm not around. And you realize one of them says, oh, yeah, he or she, they're so meek. If you heard your friends say that about you from the next aisle over at the grocery store, would you take that as a compliment? Or would you think that they're insulting you? My guess is most of us would feel kind of insulted by that. We'd be like, my friends think I'm weak, that I'm easy to be pushed around, that I'm incapable of standing up for myself. Because that's how we typically think of meekness in our world today. And so at the start of looking at this passage, we need to unpack what meekness actually is. Is Jesus just saying the pushovers who are weak, who are unable to stand up for themselves, they're the enviable ones? Or is there something more to what meekness actually means here that we're missing? And the answer is we're we're missing something. There's more to the definition of meekness than what we see here. See, the word that Jesus uses in Greek that's translated as meek here, it's very hard to translate into English. So if you look at how this word was used in the Bible and in the ancient world, it was used in lots of different ways. So it it could, depending on context, mean something like gentle. It could mean humble or considerate or courteous or kind or having the type of self-control that lets you live in all these different ways. But here's where it gets really difficult because it's not just that it can mean each of these things in different contexts, but it's actually a combination of these things. So if someone is humble, but they're not kind, they're not actually meek. If someone, you know, you, you tell them, you need to do this, blah, 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 and they're just like, whatever, I'm gonna roll over and do whatever you say, but then they walk away, and as soon as you're not there, they just talk trash behind your back, that's not true meekness. True meekness is a combination of humility and kindness and gentleness and self-control, all these things rolled into one, which makes it very hard to translate into English because what English word contains all those ideas in one word? I don't know of any. So if we're trying to figure out what it looks like or means to be meek, where do we even start? Well, this word is used four times in the New Testament. Two of them are used directly, specifically to refer to Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, 
the passage we looked at in our call to worship today. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word gentle right there. In Greek, it's the same word as meek in today's passage. So Jesus is saying, he is meek. And then in Matthew chapter 21, verse five, Jesus is in the middle of the triumphal entry. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it says, behold, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That word humble in that verse, again, same Greek word as meek in our beatitude today. So here's why I point this out. Because we're told twice that this character trait of meekness that Jesus wants us to have, that we're supposed to aim to have, it's a character trait that Jesus himself has. So if we want to find out what meekness actually looks like in practice, there's no better place to look than Jesus. How did he live? What did it look like for Jesus to be meek? And here's what it looked like. It looked like him not standing up for his own rights, but being fierce and strong when it came to standing for the rights of others and the honor of God. Jesus didn't stand up for his own rights, but when other people's rights were on the line, he was fierce, he was strong. When God's honor was on the line, he was fierce, he was strong. Like think about the life of Jesus. People did all sorts of terrible things to them, to him. He never once fought back. He never once got angry at them for the things they did to him. Pastor Kent Hughes has this summary, and I think it's a really good one. When he was mocked and spat upon, he answered nothing, but he trusted his father. When he was confronted by Pilate, he kept silent. When his friends betrayed him and fled, he uttered no reproach. When Peter denied him, Jesus restored him to fellowship and service. When Judas came and kissed him in Gethsemane, Jesus called him friend, and Jesus meant it. He was never insincere. Even in the throes of death, he pleaded, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When you look at that list, you do one of those things to me, I'm coming for you, right? Jesus had all of them happen to him and didn't respond, didn't fight back. Jesus, if you look through the gospels, people come, they try to trick him, they try to trap him. He always, always has the perfect answer. When he was on trial in front of Pilate or having the Jews call for him to be killed, he could have said something that could have gotten him out of it. He had the wisdom and the skill and he knew how people work. He could have said something to get out of it, but he didn't. He kept silent. He was sent unjustly to his death. And then when he finally opens his mouth, it's not to complain about how unfair the situation is. It's not to condemn the people who are killing him. It's not to call down an army of angels to kill them all. It's to ask for their forgiveness. Jesus was meek. He didn't fight for or insist on or stand up for his own rights. And why not? Because he trusted God to provide for him and protect him and to give him everything he needed. So Jesus was meek, but he wasn't weak. And we know this because even though he refused to fight for his own rights and comforts, It wasn't because he lacked courage. Look at this 
Next summary. When it came to matters of faith and the welfare of others, Jesus was a lion. He rebuked the Pharisees' hardness of heart when he healed the man's withered hand on the Sabbath. He was angered when his disciples tried to prevent little children from coming to him. Jesus made a whip and drove the money changers from the temple. He called Peter Satan after the outspoken fisherman tried to deter him from his heavenly mission. Jesus allowed himself to be mistreated, allowed himself to suffer, but it's not because he was weak. He had incredible strength. He was willing and able to stand up for others who were unable to stand up for themselves. He got angry. He confronted his friends and his enemies when it was necessary. So looking at the life of Jesus helps us clarify what meekness is and what meekness is not. To be meek, it means not standing up for and insisting on your own rights. But it doesn't mean avoiding conflict. Sometimes true meekness actually requires us to enter into conflict for the good of others. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Meekness, it means accepting suffering ourselves, even unjust suffering, but it doesn't mean being spineless, which means that true meekness requires great levels of self-control and love for it to be working in our hearts and our lives. In contrast to our culture's expectations, meekness, it doesn't mean weakness. It's actually a sign of having great strength, but having that strength under control. Like if you're trying to, to picture meekness in the form of an animal, a meek animal is not a turtle that just doop into its shell whenever it sees danger. A meek animal is not a little kitten that's just powerless to do anything to protect itself if you're coming at it threateningly. A meek animal is a giant warhorse who allows a bit and bridle to be put into its mouth. It is incredibly strong. It can rush into battle and trample people, but it's humble. It allows itself to be subjected to the control of another so it can accomplish the desires of his master. That's what meekness is. Incredible strength, but brought under control to be used to serve the purposes of another. So when Jesus calls us here to be meek, he's not saying to be weak. He's saying, actually, I want you to be incredibly, incredibly strong. But I want you to harness that strength under the control of your master, of Jesus, so you can use that strength for his purposes. You know, there are plenty of people in our world who, who suffer terrible things without fighting back, who go through injustice without fighting back. But many of them, they don't fight back because they feel like, oh, if I fight back, I'm just going to get in more trouble and make things worse. So why bother? That's not meekness. There are others who just are full of self-doubt and self-loathing. And when people mistreat them, they, they think to themselves, I, I really just deserve whatever bad things are happening to me. So I'm just going to accept it. Again, that's not true meekness. The meek person, when they're suffering unjustly, they recognize what is happening to me is wrong. I should not be treated this way. If I were to fight, I would have justice on my side. I could quite likely win and avoid this suffering. But the meek person is able to consciously make the choice that out of love for others and service to Jesus, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to accept it. I'm not going to fight for my rights not because I'm too weak to get them, not because I'm too bad to deserve them, but because I love Jesus more than I love what's, getting, what's mine. 
I love Jesus more than I love getting what's mine. Does that sound super hard to you? No one? Really? Everyone's like, this is easy. <laughs> I should not be the one preaching if it's easy for everyone. This is super hard, right? This is just completely backwards and opposite to the way that we typically live life. By default, whenever we feel ourselves threatened, even if it's not like physically threatened, just feel like someone's saying something that might not be quite ideal about us. We jump in and defend ourselves. Like, it's ridiculous how often I hear Justine say like one thing from the other room and I'm just like, what are you saying about me? And she's like, you don't even know what we were saying. You heard like one sentence out of an entire conversation, right? That's our default though. Like we, we jump in whenever we feel like we're being threatened. And then if we see someone else being mistreated, if we see God's name being dishonored, we say, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to jump in. That's not my fight. That's not my conflict. don't want to make things worse. But by saying the meek are the blessed ones, the enviable ones. Jesus is saying we actually have life all backwards. The good life is where we have the strength and self-control to give up our rights for the good of others. The good life is the one where we have the love and concern for others to lay down our comfort and fight for their good. And why should we pursue that life? Well, because it comes, Jesus says, with a bigger inheritance. Look what Jesus promises to the meek. He says, they shall inherit the earth. Think about that word inherit. How do you get an inheritance? Do you get an inheritance by going into battle and fighting to win it? No. Do you get an inheritance by accomplishing something great and having some achievement next to your name? No. An inheritance is given to you by right as a gift. Jesus says, if we are meek, the earth will be given to us as a gift. And who can give this gift? Who's big enough to give away the earth? It's a huge gift to give away. Only the one who made it is big enough and powerful enough and strong enough to have the right to give it away. God is the only one who can give the earth as an inheritance to his followers. So the confidence that we can have that, that Jesus will come through on this promise is great because it rests on God's reliability, which is infinite. And if it's coming from God, that means it's secure. It can never be taken away. If you get an inheritance from God, it is yours forever. And what does it mean when he says, they shall inherit the earth, right? Like each of the beatitudes we've been looking at comes with some sort of promise. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And we saw the past couple of weeks how with, with each of those first two, at least, there's a partial fulfillment right now. There's, there's some level where you get that promise here and now, but the fullness of it comes in the future. But this one can't be that way, right? They shall inherit the earth. That has to be future because right now the world belongs to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Jack Ma, and there's no space for the meek in that list, right? Those who allow themselves to be mistreated here and now, they just get trampled on. So their reward must be entirely in the future, right? Well, not quite. Yes, like with the first two, the full benefit of this promise is in the future, in eternity. When, when God says that he makes us co-heirs of all things in the universe with Christ, that's quite an inheritance. But just as with the first two, there's a partial fulfillment of this promise right here, right now. And it happens on a couple different levels. 
So here's one level. Think about this scenario with me. You're in a meeting for work, and you're supposed to be leading the meeting. You're supposed to be in charge. You're discussing new ideas that could help the company grow and become better and stronger. And you have a fantastic idea. It's going to be great for the company. And, and you throw it out there, and, and someone else, maybe a group of people in this meeting, they are strongly opposed to your idea. I know, this would never happen in a work meeting, right? Or any type of meeting. Once you have the best idea, everyone just, no, that's not how the world works, right? People oppose you. And how do they do this? Well, maybe they ask you lots of difficult questions, try and get you confused and stuck so that everyone else at the table can see this really isn't a great idea. They haven't really thought it through that well. You should go with our idea instead. Or maybe they just speak in a really firm and intimidating voice to try and scare you back so you retreat and say, oh, maybe, maybe my idea is not the best. Or they do things to try and make you feel outnumbered. You know, before the meeting, several of us were talking, and this is what we think. So you're in the minority, actually. I don't know if you've ever experienced any of these scenarios. Maybe your experience has been different. But when this happens, what's the default response for you as the meeting leader? It's going to be one of two things for everyone. Either, by default, you're going to try and get smaller, or you're going to try and get bigger. Here's what I mean. Either you're going to like, try and hide under the table like a turtle until this conflict is over. Just shut your mouth not say anything, maybe do some backtracking so that they're not as upset with me anymore. Or you're going to get bigger, you're going to do the emotional equivalent of roaring at them like a lion so that people feel threatened by you. You'll speak louder and firmer and, and threaten them back to make it clear, I am the one in charge here, you better back down. Now, if you've ever tried or seen someone else try either of these responses, does it typically work well? No. No, it does not. Neither of them is going to produce the outcome you really want. If you shrink down like a turtle and just hide behind the desk, the other group's going to just talk over you, convince everyone else their idea is right, they're going to get their way, meeting over, let's all go home. But again, like we said, being the turtle, that's not true meekness. And neither is the other go-to go -to default of roaring like the lion and getting bigger. If you fight with them, if you assert your power, I mean, you're the one in charge. You might be able to get your way. But it's going to be miserable because they're going to fight you every step of the way as you try to implement the plan. There's going to be resentment in the team that you just pushed your way through and didn't give anyone else a chance to speak. But what if when they speak up, you approach that situation meekly? What if you refuse to jump in and fight for your rights but you also refuse to just roll over and let go of trying to get what's best for the company? What if you stop fighting for yourself, but keep fighting for the good of everyone else? What if you continue to engage them with love and respect and refuse to be dragged into their way of arguing? What's going to happen? Well, you may not get your way. Like, I'm not saying this is some guaranteed pro promise for how to get your way in this discussion, but here's what's going to happen. If you're able to lay down your right to get your way, and at the same time continue to engage them lovingly, you have set the groundwork for that group to have an open and honest conversation where people feel safe putting all their ideas out on the table, where everyone can share openly and be heard, and an 
open, honest conversation where everyone can share honestly and be heard is the exact context where you're going to come to a decision that's best for the company. It might not be your idea, but hopefully it's the one that's best for the company. By remaining meek, by refusing to rise to the anxiety and the anger of those around you, but also refusing to roll over and disengage when you're threatened. You're helping create the culture and the circumstances here and now that can lead to the best outcome for your company. And it doesn't just work in companies, it works in families, churches, any other group we're involved in. When we can engage meekly, we create the context for the best outcomes in that group. The meek will inherit the earth. And that inheritance starts partially right here, right now. And it applies on another level too. Like, like I said, we all tend to look at the rich and assume that they have it all. But what do they truly have? How many rich people would say, I have enough. I'm content. I can just enjoy what I've worked for. There's this article several years ago in Esquire magazine. They interviewed four men of four different income levels. The top one earned a million US dollars a year. It's a lot of money. And one of the questions they asked all of these men is, how much do you think you'd have to have to have the life you want? And all of them, including the man who made a million US dollars a year, essentially said, just a little bit more. If you're living for here and now and the things of this world, you never have enough. You can never just enjoy the things that you have. You always have to work for more to prove yourself, to keep going. But when we live meekly, when we live humbly submitted to God's rule in our life, it sets us free to just receive every day as a gift from him, to stop worrying about getting more. There's this level of, of ownership over our things that we have here and now that the meek are offered, that the rich and famous can never have. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis on the nature of true ownership. He says, the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else thrown in. How true is that line? Nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. We can spend our lives fighting for what's ours right here, right now. But if we do that, we will never get enough to satisfy us. Like think about the tabloids. Tabloids are full of stories who people who are upset at one another and angry at one another because they weren't given their rights. If we fight for our rights constantly, try and get what's ours, we're gonna end up hating those who get in the way of what we deserve. We're gonna end up lonely because we've pushed away the people who cared about us. We'll end up despairing because each time we think we finally unlocked the door that will give us that lasting happiness, we're gonna see that it's empty still. But if we let go of our rights, if we let go of the things we feel we deserve, it sets us free to just receive each day as a gift that will be truly ours in a way that it could never be otherwise. The meek 
will inherit the earth. That will happen fully in eternity, but it starts right here, right now, in part. And yes, sometimes the meek will suffer here and now because of their meekness. But there's often more of a fulfillment of this promise that the meek will inherit the earth here and now than we would ever expect. So the meek are not pushovers. They're actually incredibly strong. Their reward for being meek is great. They will inherit the earth fully and eternally, partially here and now. But that leaves us with a question. How do we learn to live meekly? If it's such a great way to live, how do we get it? And I want to suggest two steps that we can take. And the first is to pray for the gift. Pray for the gift. If you look in Galatians chapter 5 at the fruit of the Spirit, it's a list of the attributes that if we are Christians living under the the rule of the Holy Spirit, they're going to be growing in our lives. They're going to be present and multiplying. And there's one thing in that list that's typically translated as gentleness. The word meek in our verse today actually comes from the same root as gentleness in the fruit of the Spirit. One of them, it's the same word just as an adjective in one place and a noun in the other. Now, why is that important? It's important because this this character trait only comes into our lives when we live under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can earn our way to through our own effort. It's something that's shaped and formed in our lives as a gift of God alone which means that if we want this gift to develop in us and grow in us, then the first step is to pray for it because it comes as a gift from God. So let me ask you, how often do you pray for God to make you meek? It's probably one of the least common prayers in our world today, right? I don't think I've prayed it maybe ever before this week. But the extent to which we believe the meek are truly enviable, that they truly are living the life that we should want to live, to that extent, we're going to pray for meekness to grow in our own lives. If we're not praying for meekness, we're showing through our actions, we don't really believe what Jesus is saying here. We don't really believe that meekness is the path to blessing. So that's the first step, pray for the gift. And then the second step is hear and receive the invitation of Jesus. We've already mentioned this passage in our sermon today. But in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus describes himself as gentle or meek. But that description comes in the middle of an invitation. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's Jesus saying here? A yoke is a tool that they would use on a farm. It's a block of wood with two holes in it next to each other. And what you would do is you would take two oxen or two donkeys, but as we learned a couple weeks ago, never one oxen and one donkey together. You'd take two matching animals and you would put this yoke around their necks so that they could work together to do things like plow your field. And if you had a new young ox that had never plowed before, you would use what's called a training yoke for it. And with a training yoke, what you would do is you would hook up this young ox to an experienced ox who knew what they were doing. And your first time out on the field, you'd be super distracted. You wouldn't like having this thing around your neck. You'd be uncomfortable. You'd want to get away. And as you got distracted and tried to run away, this older, more experienced ox would just keep walking. 
They would just keep doing what they were supposed to do because they knew what to do and they would bring you along so you could learn to do the job properly. And Jesus is inviting us to take his yoke on us, to hook ourselves up to him in a training yoke with him as the more experienced one. He's saying, come attach yourselves to me, learn from me, stick with me so that even when you want to wander away, I'll be with you. I'll continue to teach you. And not only will I be with you, not only will I continue to teach you, but he says his teaching will give us rest. Do you ever find it exhausting fighting for your rights? Do you get tired of just trying and trying and trying again to get people to think rightly about you? Jesus is saying when he's our teacher, we can learn that that constant struggle to prove ourselves to God and to others, that constant urge to fight for our rights so we can get what we deserve, it's not necessary. We can stop. We can be free and have rest because not only is he our teacher, but he's also our savior. All the things that we need for true life, they're ours as a gift from him. So by hearing and receiving his invitation, we learn meekness. We learn to hold on to Jesus so tightly that we let go of our tendency to fight for our rights. And how do we know if we're growing in meekness? Well, there's a test. And the test is the test of defensiveness. What's that? Well, meekness is really just taking the first two beatitudes, the poor in spirit and mourning, and applying them in our relationships with others. Recognizing I'm spiritually poor. I have nothing good that I can bring to God to make him love me. Mourning that fact and then putting that into practice in my relationships. See, it's often, I think, very easy for us to come to God and be like, God, I'm a broken, messed up sinner. Please forgive me. But it's really hard for someone else to come to us and be like, you're a broken, messed up sinner. And for us to be like, yes, you're right. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Right? That's very difficult. If someone comes and says that to us, we're like, excuse me, what? Who gave you the right to say that to me? I wouldn't be so broken and messed up if you'd be more cooperative with me. We feel the need to fight for ourselves. But when we realize the reality of who we are and the fact that God still loves us, he still accepts us, he still finds joy in having us be with him, it sets us free. We can have people come up to us and point out all our faults and flaws and failures and be okay with it. Does that sound a little too good to be true? Too hard to be real? We're, we're never gonna make it perfectly in this lifetime. But the more we're shaped into this image of Jesus, the more meek we're becoming, the more we're gonna be set free from that need to respond with defensiveness when we feel hurt by people. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I warned you at the start, God's way of living, it's gonna bring some major culture shock. The truly enviable person is the one who has such security in Jesus that they can stop fighting for their own rights that they can lay down their comfort and safety and use their strength to fight for the rights of others and the honor of God. Church, that's a huge calling, but it's one that Jesus equipped us for as we follow him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your invitation, for your invitation to blessing and life. We thank you for Jesus, the fact that he lived that invitation out as an example for us, and not only that he lived that out as an example for us, but also that he paid the price as our savior for all the times that we've failed and fallen short. That he paid the price so that in all of our brokenness and sin and poverty of spirit, we can come before you and find acceptance and love. 
So God, I pray that you'd set us free this week from our pride, from our need to fight for our own rights and give us freedom to live meekly, to live in love for others, to live in a way that honors you, to live in a way that's blessed and enviable. In Jesus' name, amen.